For most, Group 4 rallying can be summed up by one car and one car alone, the Mark II Escort. Or, if you're of a slightly left-field persuasion, it's great rival from across the channel, the Fiat 131 Abarth. Group 4 rallying underpinned the sport's top echelon for a great many years, and as a result spawned a dizzying array of incredibly diverse machines, Much of them, many of them criminally overlooked, at least today, getting on for 50 years on from the events in question. Some of the most technically advanced and interesting Group 4 rally projects appeared toward the end of the category's life, in the waning years of the 1970s and the early years of the 80s. Coinciding with technical advancements like fuel injection, programmable ECUs and increasingly capable drivetrains, these cars pointed the way towards the future, a future destined to be defined, defined by all-wheel drive, forced induction, and everything else now associated, associated with Group B at its most potent. Today on the Rally DNA podcast, Killian and myself will be shining a light on some of these late Group 4 heroes, the cars and the teams at the sharp end of the WRC thinking in the waning years of the lifespan of the category. Killian, welcome to the podcast once more. Are you fully recovered from our trip to Rally Legend last week? Uh, yeah, just about, I guess. I was still, you know, wistfully reminiscing about uh, that great collection of cars and what an event it was. And I suppose it did provide some inspiration to this topic. I mean, we had discussed this before, but I guess, you know, we did see a few of these cars actually there. So it was it came up in conversation quite a bit over the weekend, didn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, it's certainly the first time I've ever seen uh, an Alfa Romeo Turbo Delta with my own, with my own set of eyes. So that was always good. Mm, that was that was very nice, and a, and a gen and a proper trio eight on the rally stages as well. Yeah, uh, and of course the Renault Five was there too. But of course you do see those a bit more. But that Turbo Delta was really special. The wheels, the wheels, man, on it. Oh, <laughs> Rob's thighs. Yeah. <laughs> um, we we should probably make make clear from the start that uh, the cars we've chosen. This is no in no way an exhaustive list, um, and our selection is somewhat arbitrary. Uh, we wanted a cross section uh, of, of cars representative uh, of Group Four rallying in its final years, uh, and just a handy way of showing just how advanced uh, some of these cars have become uh, as the category and formula evolved towards its conclusion. Yeah, exactly. We're not here to list out all the cars that came from Group 4 to Group B because that would be quite exhaustive and probably not overly interesting at the end of the day. But yeah, I think we've got a good cross-section of stuff here. Pretty varied. All the cars here, are, well, you know, some have similarities, um, but all reasonably different and at the same time uh, for various reasons. And some some quite dramatically separate from what you'd see as well. Uh, one in particular, which we'll get to, obviously, Um so yeah, but really, really interesting cars. It's a really interesting period in rallying. Some of these cars very, very fondly. Remember, it's still to this day, and a couple of them are kind of standouts on the historic rallying scene still to this day. Absolutely, absolutely. And and so many of them um, found their careers uh, either cut short or, or otherwise curtailed by Group B and everything that that eventually became, you know, um, which has always fascinated me um, and, and sort of shows how um significant group b was at the time even if it wasn't fully appreciated um so yeah without further ado um where are you going to kick us off then jamie i am going to kick us off with uh with everyone's uh favorite italian non-lancia rally car the uh three o ferrari 308 gtb um which is such a, I mean, obviously, if you're into rallying, you know about this car's existence, but but Ferrari and rallying is, is not something you associate, uh, and with good reason, really. Uh, it was just a classic case of 
a Ferrari road car being homologated, in this case, into Group 4, uh, because really the factory had little choice because so many of its customers like to go motor racing anyway. Um, though it was still quite a big jump from from having it homologated into Group 4 uh, and then the jump from that from a race, a race platform to an actual rally car. And the one man who was who played an outsized role in in making this this jump happen. It's Jean Claude Andre, uh, who uh, who driven um, early Ferraris, including a V12 Daytona, uh, which he won the Tour de France on in 1971, I believe. That was back when the Tour de France was a mix of special stages and circuits, which obviously favoured a car like a big V12 front engine Ferrari. But he obviously enjoyed the experience because he was quite keen on on pressing Ferrari to uh, take the 308 rallying as soon as it was unveiled. Um, and he also pressed hard for uh, Charles Pozzi, Pozzi, I'm sorry, my French pronunciation, P-O-Z-Z-I, Pozzi, Pozzi, I guess. Uh, he was the France's premier Ferrari importer to, uh, to, 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 to campaign the car. Uh, which is eventually what happened, of course. What was Enzo Ferrari's reaction to this? Because he still would have been knocking about back then. I feel like he wouldn't have been overly bothered no. uh, at the prospect. <clears throat> no, um, not not at all, really. I think I think it's kind of uh, a case of supreme indifference, to be honest, in a similar way to how BMW viewed it. Um, mm. I know that Enzo... The three of eight was skipping ahead here. Was 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 in with a chance of winning the Italian national championship in nineteen eighty one, I believe. Um, but uh, the they were they were forced to compelled to use an O thirty seven. Uh, sorry, nineteen eighty two rather, an O thirty seven um, uh, to to sort of aid Lancia's share in the final result. Um, and the 037 being very early on in its career was none too reliable. The obvious happened and there was no title silverware for Lancia Ferrari or anyone. And I know Enzo took umbrage at that and there was even less Ferrari support. Um, I think Lancia's supply of Ferrari engines for its Group C programme was, was, was temporarily turned off after that as well. So Enzo being Enzo, really. Yeah, that sounds about right for him, doesn't that? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, um, but but you know it's a classic case of 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 a road car being outwardly quite well suited to sealed surface rallying. You know, plenty of power, V eight, uh, decent suspension and brakes, and 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 sort of being homologated as such. And it was it was half decent. Um, was uh, first used uh, uh, in privateer form by Andre uh, in late 1981. He used it to tackle the Tour de France and Targa Florio, Targa Florio. Uh, had some decent success, but it was quite clear the car was a bit on the heavy side. Um, tipped the scales at uh, 1350 kilograms initially. Um, and as a result, it was put on a crash diet in uh, over the over the winter. Uh, much of the work itself being done by Michelotto, the uh, Italian tuning house, um, who, who effectively campaigned, ran and developed the car. Um the one exception was that the 308, of course, ran some quite fancy for the time uh, Kugelfischer mechanical fuel injection, which was developed uh, in conjunction with Ferrari Marinello, the factory itself. Um, it was pretty peaky, pretty unreliable for a long while, but 
300 break when it worked all day, every day, which was, you know, more than enough for the time compared favorably in a world of, uh, of, of Mantas and uh, Osconas rather. But then of course, uh, that the march of, of the march of time kept on marching. Um, it, it's one of those cars that 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 had the misfortune to sort of come of age, as it were, just in time for for Group Four to reach its apex and Group B to to start appearing around the corner. Um, by the time Michel Otto had got it fully working uh, and put it on a crash diet with lots of fiberglass, uh, it was 1982, um, and you know the writing on was maybe not on the wall, but but certainly appearing on the wall. Um, uh, there was uh, a fantastic drive uh, to second overall on the Tour de Course, um, which was underway again. Uh, but, you know, it, it was quite clear that it, it was not going to be a Group B car, at least a Group B winner in, in the traditional mould. The, the weight is kind of surprising when you look at the true header from, from my perspective. And it, you, you wouldn't think it'd be a car that you'd struggle to get down the way to be. I mean, one would, I don't know the factory production model 308 weight specs, but it couldn't have been a particularly heavy car at the time. And I believe a lot of that was fiberglass anyway, wasn't it? I don't know. Um, <clears throat> so it's funny when you think, when you look at a 308 GTB and go, hmm, it's a heavy pig, yeah. um, you know, for, for rallying. But uh, it's interesting to, to hear it. Well, it is, yes. And of course, it was homologated to the Group B eventually. Um, and it got, uh, again, a four valve, gained four valve heads along the way uh, as a sop to extra performance. But then it's a case of, you know, as with many of these cars and many other programs, if, if you wanted to win at Group B, you needed uh, full manufacturer backing, decent budget, and, and proper planning. And, you know, this project had none of that. It was a, a very quick car that was quite well suited to tarmac rallying, but Ferrari was completely uninterested um, and, you know, uh, attention swiftly turned in any case to that other more potent Italian Group B supercar uh, from just up the road. Um, and of course, I suppose there's also the weird postscript of it was <clears throat> supposed to be replaced by the 288 GTO, which is Ferrari's Group B car, which was going to be the, the race car, uh, the Porsche 959's chief foil. But as we've discussed in previous podcasts, neither of those really came of age as a Group B car and both became um, 1980s supercar bedroom wall icons instead. <laughs> I know which one I prefer. I think I'll have a 288. I think I'll have a 288. Yeah, 100%. 100%. The, the, the 959 just looks a bit too unwieldy compared to the lines of the, the 288, doesn't it? It's a melted it, Porsche, isn't it? A melted mm, 11. Yeah, stuck it in the microwave. Um yeah, three hundred eight, nice car. It's it's going to be like a couple of others in the list. There was only really a couple of events that it really could have won. Uh, it, you know, all things lining up. You know, you wanted a non-snow Monty with everything else going right for you, and um, you know, tour the course provided maybe a couple of other things hadn't ran particularly well, really, wasn't it? Uh, and again, when as we've seen before, when when a car is only capable of producing results on limited events, that mm. further reduces the backing from the factory too. Exactly that, exactly that. And and rallying came so down uh, Enzo's uh, list of priorities anyway. And, and let's face it, doing this in an era when you've got a car company still ruled by an individual, a very headstrong individual who, who was effectively the dictator of the entire thing, like Enzo, you're always going to be subject to his whims and, and fancies. And, and, you know, a man obsessed with Formula One first and perhaps sports car racing in Le Mans in short order. 
sort of cutting apexes in the muddy world of rallying was never really going to appeal. No, and at that point, even sports car racing had taken a back seat in his mind. So he kind of lost interest in that in the early seventies, really, hadn't he? Absolutely. Um, so yeah, it was it was never going to work, but a glorious a glorious thing to see. Nonetheless, I, I was certainly very happy to see one at, at Rally Legend. That was quite a quite a, what a what a really well prepared car that was as well. What a um, noise. Mm, mm. I don't know particularly which model of 308 that was. I didn't get a close look because I don't know if it had the Quattro Val- Valvole. <laughs> Quattro Valvole. Such head, an evocative language. Mm, Quattro <laughs> Valvole. Um, yes. Um, anyway, enough poor Italian. Um, yeah, so does that bring us to the end of the 308 GTB story then, Jeremy? It does. It does. Um yeah, uh, apart from uh, needing to correct myself for uh, it being um, the 1982 Italian Rally Championship that was on the line uh, and Enzo threw his toys out the front pram. I had to correct myself. I can cut that in from earlier. It's fine. We'll replace it. It's all good. It's all good. So with the, with the 308 put to bed, uh, it's time to bring up another kind of similar car in some ways. Um with the BMW M1 Rally. Um, now, with the BMW M1, as I'm sure most people listening will know, is a very important car in the history of BMW, and of course, more particularly, it's M Division. Now, it's an interesting car, the M1. Uh, its roots in the late 70s are the result of an agreement between BMW and Lamborghini, of all companies, uh, which you wouldn't necessarily put the two of them together, not albeit Lamborghini now owned by Audi, but certainly y- you wouldn't have put those two together at the time, uh, they made an agreement to build a Group 5 racing car to tackle Porsche, uh, mm-hmm. who were dominating on the, on the circuit racing scene at the time. Uh, it came about because BMW wasn't going to be in a position to build the 400 road-going variants in time uh, to get them homologated. Now, Gianpaolo Dallara, uh, that's a familiar name, I'm sure, to any motorsport fan, came up with a tubular space flame chassis and the fiberglass body then was designed by Giorgetto Guigero of Vitale Design. Uh, I probably butchered all those, but you know who they are. Uh, <laughs> however, Lamborghini were in somewhat of a financial rough patch, as they tended to be in the 70s. Uh, so BMW took full control of the project in 1978. Now, the plan originally was for Lamborghini to build the vehicles, but now production would be split between Modena, Turin and Munich, where final assembly would take place. So quite a border-hopping project. Uh, in Munich, the car will be fitted with the 3.5-litre inline-six M88 engine developed by Paul Rosche, who would go on to design the, the, the famous S14, uh, later seen in BMW M's next car, the M3. Uh, again, something we've discussed on the, the podcast before. So a guy who knew what he was doing. Uh, and what an engine it was. Six individual throttle bodies and fitted with Jamie's aforementioned favourite form of fuel injection. Uh, Kugel Fisher, <laughs> mechanical fuel injection. I, uh, just, just as an aside, when we were in Enzo, the Enzo Ferrari Museum at the site of Enzo Ferrari's old house in Modena, on the way back from my legend, there was a, a 308 and the thing of James, oh, that's the one with the Kugel Fisher mechanical fuel injection. I went running over to it. So it speaks to Jamie's uh, love for a bit of Kugel Fisher. Uh, it's a great, great word to say, to be fair. Uh, <laughs> So the M88 made 273 horsepower and road trim, so pretty potent uh, for late 70s in, in what a bit of a reasonably lightweight body. Now, the goal of this car was always to go racing, BMW being BMW, of course. And in 1979, 
BMW formed the M1 Pro Car Championship before enough cars were built to allow them to compete under Group 4 rules. So customers were allowed to race in a one-make championship. Now, all of this, of course, was coinciding with the ever-growing popularity of rally, which you know, even it's easy to forget that even up until really the mid-70s, it was still very much the outlier in the motorsport world. And in France in particular, where this championship was run exclusively on tarmac, which you may have mentioned French tarmac rallying on this show before, BMW France saw an, a marketing opportunity in using the Merck's flagship, which was bred for surface on their sealed surface events. It makes sense, no? Uh, <laughs> we'll use the race car on the countryside. We, oh, uh, the racetrack is tarmac, and so are the roads. Well, well, this is this is this is the episode where, where we're insulting the Italian fan base, not the French one. <laughs> okay, I mean, it, it has to come in there soon as well. <laughs> it's ever it's ever shrinking. Uh, so yeah, look, I guess you know, on paper, that seemed like a logical enough step, didn't it? Well, yeah, and especially as as you say, it made plenty of power. A power, I think, four hundred and twenty five, four hundred and thirty brake by the time it was uh, in rally trim, which was obscene. Blue, well, blue anything else? You think, well, what else mm. is has that in in nineteen eighty two? You know, I mean, that's uh, that's peak Lancia O thirty seven a year and a half down the line power figures, give or take, isn't it? You know, it's. it's... I don't even think that made that much. Mm. Um, so yeah, it certainly. Very potent, very potent. Um, so yeah, I mean, look, if it's good in the circuit, BMW know how to make a car that works on thermic, you know. So, like the 308 kind of outwardly looks reasonably suitable to certainly thermic rallying, if not anything else. Uh, I guess the story you've seen before with, with the M3, uh, but BMW France, being a dealer network, needed someone to prepare the cars and turn to Orica, Orica, Orica. Arika of Dodge okay. Viper fame. Yes. Uh, so what they would do is take an M1 Pro car, in most cases, and modify it for rallying. The modifications really weren't that substantial. They carried over most of the parts. It was a wide-looking beast with a big rear wing and huge flared arches. So it, it looked a business, if not very, very wide. Um, really yeah. purposeful, low-slung-looking thing. There's a fantastic, uh, famous photo of uh, Bernard Beguin getting it stuck on a, a particularly tight Corsican hairpin and having to do a, like a five-point turn in front of a, a big group of spectators, which was just... And when whip does become an issue in your rally car, that's a story. Yeah, and I, I, that, that will come up later, I guess. Yeah, uh, certainly on Corsica. Um, but it did, it did look... Looked the part, uh, but it still very much looked like a circuit refugee rather than a rally car. Um, as you said, the engine and race trim is now developing around 430 horsepower. So, yeah, really, really potent. Uh, massive power advantage over anything rallying at the time. I mean, if you think about it, if this is 1981, I'm jumping ahead. Okay, uh, yeah. Like, okay, who are the top dogs then? So let's say the Escone is there. Th- that had varying amounts of power. But nothing approaching that. I mean, the, the top power you're getting in a Skona <laughs> would be 340. And at that level, you're really pushing reliability. That's really, really pushing the edge. Um, You've got a few leftover Stratuses, uh, mm, Talbot sure. Sunbeams, 131s. It's kind of that yeah, you know, that nether zone, really. Mm. And most of those are shy couple of cylinders as well, this guy. So, yeah, uh, all, all looking good so far, I guess. Uh, dogleg 5-speed ZF box, shorter ratios. 
uh, LSD naturally and, and bigger brakes, which had aluminium calipers as opposed to the cast iron items on the road car. So with the car ready to compete in 1981, it was entrusted to the all-conquering Bernard Darniche, uh, who basically won everything in France that you could win over the last couple of years and was was almost unchallenged at that point in, in, in various uh, machinery. So with that, BMW France and Arika sat back, lit a jetan and awaited the trophies to come rolling in. Alas, is not to be. At its debut in the Rally du Var, the car retired with suspension failure. You know, look, teething problems, you know, you're going to get it. Not to be put off, Arika were back for 1982. Now sporting a striking moto livery and resolved to take their powerful mid-engine missiles to the legendary Tour de Course, confident of a better outing. To shake the car down in advance, it went to the Rallye de Mont Dome, where the engine failed. So you know, more bad omens there. And now we get to the Tour de Course. And I'm sure anyone listening is familiar with the Tour de Course and the stages and photographs of cars winding down these narrow roads which leads you back to the problem that you just mentioned jamie yes yes and my favorite fact about that is that this is the 1982 tour de course is also the debut of the lance euro 37 um so you have this fantastic juxtaposition of two outwardly quite similar mid-engine coupe wedgie jobs um one of which would go on to be one of the most evocative rally cars and successful rally cars of the decade and the other, which is just a, a weird, albeit brilliant footnote. Yeah, and it's still largely forgotten as well. I think it probably got a bit of a boost in remembrance when it featured in Dirt Rally 2.0 there, but it's very easy to forget the M1 had any bit of a rally career at all. Mm. Certainly isn't meant much footage of it. Um, but yeah, certainly wasn't uh, particularly easy to navigate in those roads. I'd actually have to pull up the homologation papers now and see the difference in the width between that and the 037. I wonder how much of a difference there was. But a big problem for it was its pathetic handbrake. So you just couldn't wrestle it or make it maneuver uh, around those tight corners. Poor Bernard wasn't <laughs> able to finish, no doubt, with the arms hanging off him uh, due to an oil pipe letting go. So maybe it was a mercy that he didn't get to complete the event. And over the rest of the year, he was to finish just one event in the M1 with a ninth place in Germany at ADAC Rally Vorderfels. I should have just said Germany, shouldn't I, rather than butch there. Um, and ended the season getting injured at the Rally d'Antibes, and he quit the team at the end of 1982. Who could blame him? And in his place, to save on the budget of changing the names on the car, Bernard Begwin replaced him for 1983. So not much to do on the paperwork other than change the surname. <laughs> yes. Um, and I mean, to be fair, Bernard had a bit more luck, didn't he? Um, I think he got uh, a few uh, abrasive uh, podium finishes and various French national rallies. He sure did. Um, but it still was a bit of a, a bit of a pig. And, and certainly, you know, in my, March 1983, when the BMW M1 was homologated under Group B, uh, homologation number B240, using the Evolution uh, Termination rules, uh, like many of its Group 4 counterparts, and it returned to course to get to tackle those roads once again. Boyd by Begwin managing a second place in his first outing as the car, like you said, Jamie, a month earlier. Uh, however, Bernard 2.0 was let down by the engine failing and retired from the event. Uh, and would again retire from all following events in 1983. Uh, yeah. 
So yeah. it does look like the car was capable of good results in Begwin's hands, but being constantly mired by issues meant it was not to be. He did seem like he had the pace in it. You know, Corsica probably wasn't as ideal as it maybe seemed on the paper, but I think German Championship, French Championship rounds, I think it definitely, I mean, there's no reason why it shouldn't have been able to push, but if it, if it couldn't finish the rally, then, you know, at the end of the day, you know, you have to finish, as we mm-hmm. all know. Um, you know, an example of the pace that Kobe got from the car was its second place behind a 037 on one event, which I guess is as good a benchmark as any for a mid-engine rear-wheel drive rally car of the day. Mm-hmm. So... The M1 goes down in history as a bit of a fish out of water that was, while looking like it maybe wasn't, it just had, it, it had what it looked like it had what it takes, but it couldn't produce what was needed in a different category. Too wide, too heavy, and ultimately far, far too unreliable. Uh, but it wasn't the end of the road for Begwin, because of course he would redeem himself and BMW later in the decade with the M3. Absolutely. Uh, and I think this is another case of, and we'll hear quite a lot of this in this episode of uh, a team being a bit hamstrung by the manufacturer it's working with, not being especially interested or having bigger fish to fry. In the case of BMW at the time, it's getting ready for F1, isn't it? You know, this period is uh, the Megatron uh, coming get into bed with Brabham and, and everything else, right? And, and as we saw with the E30 later in the decade, it was... You know, they were quite happy that they were doing some winning and the results are covering, but there's a long jump between that and and digging deep to fund a proper mm. you know, WRC program. Yeah, and it was even less of an involvement than they had then. The results, regardless, like this was very much a French importer effort, mm-hmm. uh, and I, 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 the factory support amounted to very little other than maybe some technical advice. Um, certainly not money, I guess, uh, or development time. So. That yeah. they'd already they'd already got what they wanted from the M1. They didn't need to, they didn't need it to go rally. So that was... they recycled quite a lot of parts from the pro car pro- program directly into make the rally cars. You know, pretty much. Yeah, not not very much was bespoke or changed or different. Um, which again would lend itself to why the car was so troublesome. I guess, um, quite heavy. Like its its dry weight was eleven fifty kilos mm. without. Dry, without crew or fluids, so you're going to add another two hundred kilos. It looks like a heavy car. You know, it does look like a heavy car. Does look heavy, and I can't really put my finger on why. Mm. Because so, yeah. considering the 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 road going variant looks rather kind of <laughs> delicate and light in comparison. Well, yeah, but the rally one's about half a foot wider on each side, isn't it? Yeah, That's, exactly. Uh... Uh, it's a dramatic, <clears throat> dramatic change. Those big, big arch extensions and the wing. Um, I quite like the M1 mm. road car. Though, I must say, it's a it's quite a nice looking thing. Uh, so yeah. Well, on the subject of of heavy, somewhat cumbersome rally cars, we have the Mercedes Benz four hundred and fifty and five hundred, the SLC and the SL. Um, I've always been interested in this particular rally program, even if not particularly enamoured with the cars themselves. It was the subject of a rally sport article about. 25 years ago, which I read as a kid, uh, called Born Under a Bad Sign, uh, diving into, you know, fairly hopeless rally cars. And, and it's probably fair to say it's had an outside impact influence on, on my how I view rally cars and rallying now. Um, but on the basis of it, it's, on the face of it, it's it, it's a bit unwarranted because it was quick enough. It won the Ivory Coast rally twice. Uh, one of these was a one, two, three, four lockout the second time. Um, and it was quick enough to look like it should have won the safari, but it didn't. And the reason it didn't is because Mercedes's 
complete lack of experience in rallying and seemingly in a in unwillingness to sort of learn. Um, it's a classic case of a car company opening its wallet and trying to spend its way uh, to, to the top of the to the top of the pile. Um, it's also worth noting that the Mercedes of the late 1970s was a very different beast to the one of now. Um, mm -hmm. This was a, a car company that had completely exempted itself from all forms of motor racing after that horrific Le Mans disaster of 1955. Yeah. Um, sort of self-imposed isolation. Um, but I think like many car manufacturers in the 70s, the appeal of rallying was the idea that you could take a production car and blat it through the Italian savannah or some equally inhospitable place and hopefully emerge victorious, thus proving the, the innate strength and reliability of your cars. It's what the Japanese liked doing. It's why the Japanese of the time favoured things like the Ivory Coast and the Safari all the way through until the late 80s. Um, and it's the brief that uh, Eric Waxenberger, the, uh, the, the Mercedes team manager, was given um, in, in the late 70s to do uh, with the SEL, well, certainly um, those those endurance events that like, you mentioned, like Ivory Coast, because of course in Africa at that time, the the Mercedes of the day was this rugged beast. You still see them knocking about, you know, uh, mm. in that neck of the woods. You know, uh, it's not like you know the late nineties, early two thousands E class. Ugh. Um, <laughs> but you know, in those days, like you know, if you're going to advertise a Mercedes, that's what Mercedes were like. They were this. You know, they were, yeah, built built to a T, you know, really rugged, you know, carved out of granite. Yeah, so those those long distance endurance trials in, in, in the likes of the Ivory Coast were certainly would suit the brand mm -hmm. to a T. Yeah. Uh, very yeah. at home there. And it was certainly tough at the time. As we all know, this is when Mercedes's reputation for sort of hewing its cars from granite was justified and where it stems from. Um yeah. Uh, Andrew Cowan, uh, you know, for later of, of Rally Out fame, uh, he, he'd, uh, he'd won the Safari in the Mitsubishi uh, earlier, but in 1978, he took uh, a fairly bog standard uh, 450 SLC and, and won the Tour of South America in 1978, which is a big part of what convinced Mercedes, the board of Mercedes, to uh, green light a full Group 4 rally program. Um, and they decided to use the SLC, which is the coupe, five liter, naturally aspirated V8, plenty of power, also plenty of weight. And they made the odd mm. decision, which is probably the most famous thing about this car in the rally program, of, of homologating it with its automatic gearbox. With three speeds. Yes, yes. Yeah. I, I, oh, I mean, yeah. And maybe I'm coming at this. Perhaps from with with from the wrong way, but it smacks of almost arrogance in my in my view, and I guess that's also what I've been, you know, brought up to believe about this rally car program, and and sort of perhaps want to view it as such. But it seems completely pig-headed to to think you could emerge from with no rally experience and sort of just reform it to your reform the sport to your needs through sheer financial clout and and will. Um. Yeah, particularly with something like the SLC, which, which well, a rather appealing car on many levels, and though it is a coupe, would you call it a sports car? Yeah, I mean, or it a like... performance car. Okay, it's got a big lump of a V8, and you know, <laughs> what it it you, you you're not buying one for its uh, agility and turn of pace. It's a boulevard cruiser, isn't it? Mm. 
Um, but you know, I mean, the, the earlier results seemed must have seemed to vindicate the the, the, the Mercedes board's decision. Um, Mikola was was signed up to 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 drive the car in 1978, um, and then this is something of a recurring theme. The Mercedes checkbook was opened very wide to to attract some of the the heavy hitters of the sport, but whenever they weren't driving a, a Ford, generally. Um, and so Mikola contested the 78 Safari um, and sorry, 79 Safari and came second overall, uh, which which was encouraging. Um, but there was also a complete lack of of nous when it came to servicing the cars. You know, this was a team that had no experience whatsoever, very much thinking on its feet. So yes, that safari rally was uh, was was largely scuppered by service related mishaps, faux pas, and poor timing, which must have been frustrating. Um, Mickler was second. Waldegard came back in sixth, fairly distant. Um, and although they locked out the Ivory Coast later that year, it was clear that you know there was still a lot of work to be done. And as we all know, the Ivory Coast was always the sort of poor relation of the safari rally at the time, uh, both in terms of, of profile and stature and entry lists. Um, but nevertheless, to encourage Mercedes to, to sort of take a more fulsome embrace of rallying uh, the following year. Uh, and this is when when the vast amount of Mercedes money really started getting spent on the infrastructure of the team. Um, you, you had uh, hitherto unforeseen numbers of service barges, trucks and things, uh, fixed wing aircraft flying ahead, um, up to 60 vans and things to, to pootling around the place, which, you know, I guess kind of pointed the way to how the sport would become just over 10 years later. But at the time, it was just completely out of this world when most teams were still using a Mark II Granada estate over there with some wheels strapped to the top. Wouldn't you love to see the the difference in expenditure for Mercedes on one of those event, events compared to whatever, literally any other outfit? You know, the as you say, some guys in a clapped out Mark II Granada with a roof rack. Yes. Uh, and that would be the top tier. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you were lucky if you had a Mark too. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think partly is the fact that, that as as many things, but many uh, period pieces make clear, the idea that if you're going to rally a car as big and heavy as a 450 SLC, then all your parts are going to be big and heavy to fit said 450 SLC. So it's not just a case of, you know, sticking some featherweight Fiat wings made of hopes and dreams in the back of your car and, and going for the best. You know, you've got to lug around an axle that weighs as much as the country you're competing in. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, yes, uh, it was obviously developed largely with African endurance stuff in mind. But come 1980, um, Mercedes did trial it on some of the uh, traditional European sprint type events. Um, the first one being Portugal. Uh, which was where they again tried using their, their their full service barge infrastructure, but it wasn't really happening. Um, <laughs> uh, Waldegard came fourth, but he was it was made to look decidedly uh, average and, and a bit ponderous compared to Fiat One Three Ones and and Sunbeam Lotuses, which obviously were were doing the the heavy running, the quick running at the time. Yeah. And then finally onto the the the, the sort of Nadir, um, the that year Safari, which. It's kind of what sealed the the fate of the program as a whole, really, because this was a rally that Mercedes wanted to win. The car had been developed to win and indeed could have won because 
it was quick. Uh, it, it, they, they, Nicola and Waldegard uh, were, were trading times and, and leading uh, up until rear suspension started failing on all the cars. And it turned out that uh, this had been come to light in pre-event testing and Eric Waxenberg had taken upon himself to commission the team to sort of conduct a slightly heath repair, preemptive repair uh, of the rear trading arms uh, with like an extra brace welded in. And it's the kind of thing that no rally team, modern WRC team would even dream of doing. But at the time, it's what you just did, suck it and see. And while it stopped that particular bit failing, it just transposed the, the failing force further down the drive line and still resulted in the same conclusion of failed rear suspension and everything else. Um, Mikola's lead was lost when his car lost a wheel, uh, a rear wheel. Um, and then uh, Arna Hertz, his co-driver, was uh, clouted by a fellow competitor in the hand as he was changing or trying to change said wheel. Um, which which obviously did for him, even though apparently he did try, was quite keen to carry on co-driving, but couldn't really do so because he was under so much pain medication. Um, I, I bet. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then Waxenberger himself tried sitting in for a stage and and did all right until the uh, the powers that be said, no, you can't do that. You know, even the Safari Rally of 1980 had some rules, it seems. It's not fun. Um, so yes, uh, uh, not a particularly great event. Uh, Vic Preston Jr. came was the best Mercedes finisher in third, which on the face of it is quite a decent result, but but not given that it had the pace to win and not given the amount of money that was spent. Mm. And that kind of sets the tone for the remainder of the year, really. Um, it was homologated back into Group 2 with a slightly smaller V8 engine in time for Rally Argentina. Um, where Mikola came second, uh, New Zealand, Mikola came third, which on the face of it is another good result. But again, Not this bad. is New Zealand in when, when when you weren't compelled to contest it. So the entry mm. list was was you know quite sparse. Um and then another victory on the Ivory Coast at the end of the year. So no by no means a failure, but it was just a case of a car patently ill-suited to to rallying as a sport in the round you know uh it's a, a class it probably would have been an absolute world beater if it had taken place 15 years previously when you know the citrons of this world were just making a living winning and competing in africa um, mm. and i mean it's always got an interesting postscript because of course the mercedes money was still flowing right to the end of the year when Waxenberger managed to convince Walter Roll to drive for him for 1981. Mm -hmm. um, and despite Roll knowing that the car was by no means a winner, um, I think he signed just before Christmas that year. And yeah. just after Christmas, the Mercedes boardroom decided that there was no point throwing good money after bad and pulled the plug on the entire program, uh, leaving Roll without a drive um, for now. Uh, and, and generally sort of, ending the program under a cloud. Uh, there was talk and there was a mooted Mercedes Group B rally program, uh, which was going to be based on a 190E, still with Cosworth involvement, either with uh, a front-engined rear-wheel drive layer or perhaps a mid-engined one. Mm -hmm. But quite sensibly, I guess in retrospect, with the power of hindsight, Mercedes decided that they didn't have the stomach to, to sort of go toe-to-toe. By this point, the, the Quattro had already been announced and, and I guess the writing was, again, perhaps creeping towards being on the wall. 
Yeah, I suppose they copped it earlier than some of the brands did, you know. Uh, they didn't sink a pile of development money into a 190E uh, as so many other manufacturers had started and did build rear-wheel drive, front-engine, kind of reasonably traditional, I guess is maybe a word you'd use. Yeah, Rally cars. R1700T, um, yeah, Pozo's 305-1. Star- Starion. The Talbot one as well. So there's quite yeah. early on in the Group B category. There's there's no end of car manufacturers thinking that, well, this is just going to be Group 4 with a turbo, really, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and, yeah. So, I, I don't know. It's always fascinated me because, you know, you look at it, not unsuccessful, not in the grand scheme of things. There's plenty of worse rally cars. But it's just the mm. fact that I, I just find it so interesting, eternally interesting, that, that a car company with so little experience could just kind of, bully it thought it could bully its way to the top just by spending so much yeah i guess drawing money at the problem sometimes works um certainly got the best drivers didn't it i mean you know michael oh, yeah. guard role i mean for the time that's that's the crown jewels really isn't it oh yeah i mean yeah there's not really a better lineup you can go and turn up at monte carlo with or whatever and the start of the season that they did but you know it, it, it is an interesting one for sure. One that I've always, I, I, you'd always enjoy these kind of fish out of water rally stories as well. These big barges and the money was put behind it. And, and it's always, I really enjoy these, these ones. And it's very much of the time as well. Mm-hmm. And it continued into the 80s where a manufacturer or a brand would, would target a specific event or type of event rather than a championship as a whole. Um, which always produced some nice stories and interesting cars and different ways of going about it. Though they were so compromised every time they took them anywhere else. Um, though that said, using the SLC uh, as a base, uh, it didn't really matter what you did. It wasn't going to be competitive on Monte Carlo or Finland or whatever anyway, whatever you did with it. So yeah, it's an interesting project. Um, I'll just say a great lineup of drivers. I'm sure they were handsomely paid I think that's the thing. I I, I I think that's been always been the case, really. The idea that you'd swallow your pride and, and just accept. Because I suppose, you know, from a Mickler and a Waldegard point of view, it's not like they weren't on the other weekends. It's not like they weren't driving pocket group four cars like escorts that could actually win. So it was a mm. case of, you know, laughing on the way to the bank. Yeah. Bypassing Boreham on your way. Yeah. I mean, look, it's something for the kind of fun for the kids or whatever. So, you know, you're not going to turn it down. But um, I'm sure they were more than happy. You'd like to see, I'm sure you'll never see it, but wouldn't you like to see a comparison of what Mercedes spent over the course of X amount of events versus whoever in Forum or whatever, uh, or, or Mitsubishi, um, to compare the like for like spending on event to event, considering what Mercedes brought to the table? Yes, I mean, I bet it dwarfed Boreham. I mean, Boreham were known even at the time for sort of operating on a shoestring. I suspect even more interesting might be good to compare Lancia, you know, because mm. they were always well-funded, you know. Mm. So that's the Mercedes. So on a very different departure now from a, from the likes of an SLC, I'm going to talk a bit about the Renault 5 Turbo. Not to be confused with the GT Turbo, because it's not a GT Turbo. Uh although I've been guilty of that in the past. Uh, the mid-engine turbo is not a GT turbo. That's a different care. So, Renault 5 turbo then. Um, the success of Lancia's brilliant Stratos in the mid-70s um, had shown the concept of a bespoke mid-engine car made to win rallies was a concept that worked. 
uh, and it was a source of inspiration to a chap called Jean Terramorcy. Terramorcy, yeah, we'll, we'll go with that one. Um, who was vice president of production at Renault. And he fancied seeing one of his cars winning on the stages. So he contacted uh, Marc Deschamps of Bertoni to help bring his vision to life. A vision that wasn't, well, wasn't quite bespoke in the way the Stratos was. Uh, was still going to be a very radical departure. It was going to be based on the Renault 5 Alpine, which was already being used in, in competition. Uh, but the road-going Renault 5 Alpine was front-engine, front-driven, had a normally aspirated 93-horsepower engine uh, in road-going, which admittedly was a fairly rapid hot hatch of the day. But the Renault 5 Turbo would have a turbocharged 1.4-litre engine developing 160 brake horsepower mounted behind the front seats and driving the rear wheels through a gearbox just after the engine. So this is almost like a proto kind of what we would see in Group B in a few years later. You know, the, it, it is a bespoke mid-engine car, essentially. It just vaguely resembles a Renault 5 and shares probably six components with it. Um, I always so, forget that it's such a, a tiny 1.4. Um, it's an ancient little pushrod engine as well. Mm, it's really old. old. Yeah, I think even even as I was writing this bit, I was kind of like, I went into it, like, this is, a, this is an 1800 or a 1600 minimum, you know. Uh, mm. You'd forget, like, you know, I know the road-going GT turbos are 1.4s, but you, you just assume this has to be bigger. Um, no. Um, and the new body to take this was visually striking, really, really big. Much, much wider, beefier, look really, really purposeful, squat, big arches, really wide at the rear. Um, really, really good looking thing. Still one of the best looking uh, rally cars, I think, ever. Uh, and it's still it's still a really squat, small vehicle at the end of it, too. Uh, so after the homologation requirement of 400 road cars was reached in 1980, the 5 Turbo was good to go and do what it was meant to do go and win some rallies. So while its debut ended with Jean Ragnotti's car catching fire, as the most auspicious of starts, um, I'd like to cigarette, turbos, eh? cigarette lighter. Um, they, drove, they drove to a second place in Sevan, I think, mm-hmm. uh, in November 1980. No, well, I know that's where it is. I just don't know if I pronounced it correctly. Um, in November 1980. And the stage was set for much further success. So in 1981, Ragnati, now packing 180 horsepower from the same 1.4-litre engine, won in Monte Carlo overall, much to the delight of all at Renault. Uh, and this was followed by another overall victory at the Tour de Corse in 1982. Now, like many cars to come out of France over the years in terms of rallying, this was very much suited for and far more dominant on tarmac, and that's where it saw most of us success. Obviously, as we mentioned, we'll stop banging that drum Look, it's the French Championship is on Tarmac. That's what they want to do, and that's what they were good at. And uh, the car was innately suited to it, particularly with the Renault 5, because it was such a short wheelbase with that weight towards the rear, kind of sliding and skidding about on a loose surface was going to be a really tricky prospect, wasn't it? Oh, absolutely. And it you know, goes without saying that you needed insanely top-tier drivers like a Ragnotti or a Sabi or mm. a Terrier. Um Though it's also worth noting that that 1981 Monte Carlo rally was was quite a snowy one. Um, yes, he only won, of course, because uh, the the Quattro of uh, of Mickler had, had shit the bed. Retired, had, yeah, had shit the bed. But you know, French rally, French driver, 
French rally car. It all lined up, I'm sure. The the wine was flowing in Renault HQ that night. It got plenty powerful as well. I think, uh, you know, come 1982 or so, it was running 250-odd brake. Mm. Um, and, and, and more, uh, as we'll, we'll get to, for sure. Um, but it didn't seem to... I mean, it seemed to be doing quite well even at the lower end of the spectrum. I mean, the, the first one was the 160. They, they only upgraded to the 180 for the second homologation, which was... Um, named for its initial win in Savon, mm-hmm. uh, I guess, uh, was with a 180 horsepower upgrade. Um, but in 1982, the new Group B regulations were, were all but finalised, and for 1983, Renault were able to homologate the five into Group B uh, with the five turbo Tour de Course, that homologation being named naturally for its result in tour the course uh upgraded even further with 210 horsepower and some aerodynamic advances also uh rather unusually when you think of group b the five was actually handicapped by this transition which is i think is really really interesting so you think that you kind of go okay you're going up to this new rule set and you can kind of play with it a bit more and, and go a bit wilder but because of the small engine size like you mentioned it actually put it in a kind of uh, a class that kind of upset things a little bit because it was in the B11 class rather than B12, which was the top tier fire spitting supercar class. Um, once here we go again, Jamie, your turbo multiplication factor was applied. <laughs> it put it in the 1600 CC to 2000 CC class, which was, as I said, B11. And as per the regulations in that class had to use, oh, we're really getting deep into it now, aren't we? Narrower tires and a narrow track in group four. Uh, sorry, narrow tires, but the same track. So it really compromised traction even further. So we've gone up to power, but we've lost traction. So it, it, you know, on the surface, it would appear that this would be, you know, Group B, let's boost it up and, and kind of keep kicking on. But it, it actually really upset uh, the car. Yeah, and what's weird is, well, perhaps not weird, vindicating that how good how good it was is that it, it kept on giving a really good account of itself far far later in the group e, group b era than you might have thought i mean you know uh ragnotti came uh, third on the tour de course in 1984 you know that's, that's yes he did and that was before they'd upgraded the car further and changed the class again so that's i mean fair play although i guess on tour de course you would obviously get away with it that bit more than some of the events um but that's it's really down on power compared to what was there in Mm-hmm. Uh, what's that? What May? Was it May? I guess it'd be May, May, May mm-hmm. or June '84. Or uh, so, like that's a really, really impressive drive. Um, yeah, I mean, look, Ragnati was just—he was pretty damn good. Uh, and you stuck him in a small Renault, wasn't he? No uh, one has looked faster in a rally car, except perhaps Metcalf at Nova. I was just going to say Metcalf and Nova. Yeah, they're uh, men cut from the same cloth when it comes to front wheel drive hatchbacks. Uh, yeah, sure. Um. Yeah, Metcalf taken too soon for sure. Uh, definitely would have been up with the the top tier of WRC had he been around. I reckon. Um, but uh, yeah, that's an aside. In with, with those declining results and lack of traction, other than that aforementioned Tour de Course result, uh, Renault engineers at Renault Sport went back to work and made use of visas. Evolution termination rule, which I mentioned in the M1 segment. So uh, the result then was the Renault Maxi 5 Turbo, not the 5 
Renault 5 Maxi Turbo. It's a Maxi 5 Turbo, apparently. This is according to the homologation papers. I've done my research. I've read the homologation papers for this one. So it was homologated on the 1st of December 1984 with the number B267. Uh, and, and crucially, they'd achieved the increased engine displacement, which is now up to 1,527cc, which put the car now in the B12 class, allowing, allowing for a wider track and wider tyres. Also, loads of bodywork changes, integrated lamp pods, front end looked really different, a bit boxier, a bit wider, but it looked looked really slick. Um, and, and really fascinatingly, the new engine was now putting out 360 horsepower, um, which is insane for Absolutely. a 1.5 litre engine. Uh, and also had a really an innovative, if rudimentary, anti-lag system courtesy of Renault's F1 um, work known as DPV. Oh, okay. So it's a dispositive pre-rotation variable. So I was this dispositive pre-rotation variable, I guess. Is That's it? a very fancy word for, for some Frenchman lobbing a gitan in, in the wastegate <laughs> somewhere at a, an opportune moment. Yeah. And there goes the last French French listener. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, and you, it was actually really tricky to use because they get to do a lot of left foot braking while mashing the throttle to to keep it going. Um, but while it did remain a little uncompetitive on loose surfaces, it did return to winning ways by beating the more powerful four wheel drive, all conquering the Group E cars you know and whatever love uh, and see on all the crazy YouTube footage. Now, the 1985 Tour de Course, Ragnati once more uh, took it to overall victory. And in 1986, Francois Chatrio got a second place on the Tour de Course as well, which is really, really impressive for a car that, which at that point had been around for, I was basically the car that started development in 1979. So it's pretty long legged for a rally car, despite, okay, it did the Max, the five Maxi Turbo or the Maxi Five Turbo was quite a different beast, but. You can only stretch so much out of a platform, as we've seen over the years. So um, mm. it's pretty incredible stuff. I, yes. you know, again, it's reasonably event specific, but what what you know, as I said, a really old engine at the heart of it. Um, some going out of Renault Sport. You kind of hand it to them. Yeah, and I like the fact that the the original five turbo became kind of like a an everyman's. Uh, competitive rally car it, it, it won you know well into the 80s in spanish national championships the, the mm. yugoslav national championship the hungarian and the greek championship so you know it must have done gravel work in greece as well for sure um so you know kind of an everyman's peak group four rally car for a period yeah they were quite popular with privateers so they must have been reasonably reliable and cheap to run um yeah. They also made that one make race series, didn't they? So I guess there were plenty of them kicking around for that for, mm. for, a, for a, a spell. That one we saw at Rally Legend was rather nice, and he was surprisingly kind of hanging the arse out of it and sliding it around corners, which must be rather difficult, I think, in a car that short of a wheelbase. Um, yes. so I kind of I didn't expect it to come past us sideways. When I did, I was respect, you know. Um, that was a cool. That was a nice again another well prepared car. Don't know that wasn't a maxi, that was that was just, I think it was a tour great. of course. Mm. Um, and there's too many, too, too bloody damn many homologations of one car with different names. I tell you, yeah, uh, one of the best looking rally cars of all time, 
I think certainly up there for me anyway. In all its guises, it was a rather appealing thing. I suppose the, the blue and red Phillips livery is probably the best remembered on the maxi. Um, you know, and, and quite long lived. Yeah. Uh, very well remembered Carlos to this Science day. Drove one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and like I said earlier, it, it was almost this kind of proto group B formula before people had cotton on that you could rip the guts out of a hatchback, make it vaguely resemble that car that you sold in the dealership, drop an engine in the back of it and change the drive completely. Um, and obviously we saw that with the Metro and the 205 T16 and stuff down the ways. But this was way ahead of that. So, uh, yeah, really, really great car. And one that made a reasonably successful transition from Group 4 to Group B as, as those things went. Right. So now we have perhaps the best-named rally car of them all, the Alfa Romeo Alpeta Turbo Delta, um, which is just evocative as all hell, isn't it? Let's face it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What a name. Uh, there really isn't a better name, surely, out there. I mean... Rolls off the tongue. Mm. Uh, Mm. The the name came uh, from Auto Delta, who were the the, the Italian tuning firm and race car prep business who traditionally uh, raced Alfa Romeos. Um, And they had done the same with the naturally aspirated Alfetta GT um, from the mid-70s onwards. Uh, And with modest success, um, our man uh, Andrew A cropped up again. Uh, He drove one to third overall on the Tour de Course. That was a Group 2 car, I believe. Um, but as was the way with, with Group 4 and just rallying as a whole at the time, as the, the 70s progressed, you needed more power and forced induction became the flavour of the day, the flavour of the week. Um, so the uh, Turbo Delta was homologated in 1980. Um, it, it was... <laughs> I mean, again, it's another case of a, a car firm perhaps not giving its rally program the resources it it, it required, much less deserved. Uh, and again, probably because they were partially farming it out to a third party like Auto Delta. Um, but the early cars spent a lot of their time catching fire. Um, the, mm. the, 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 the turbo uh, necessitated a huge amount or generated a huge amount of heat. Um, it wasn't properly cooled at all uh, in its early form uh, which is why so shortly after the uh, turbo delta gains that weird centrally mounted bonnet scoop which some people say is ugly but i think it's quite functional and cool with it well let's put it this way they would have been envious of the under under bonnet temperatures of the nissan sunny um <laughs> i'm glad we're, we're we're an accessible readily accessible podcast for, <laughs> for the average rally fan man and man or woman of the street <laughs> but nevertheless it, you know it, in turbocharged form with uh with a, a single uh triple k turbo i believe um it uh, it made 350 brake um the the road cars made 200 brake the 400 required to, to be granted homologation uh, which, of course, compared very favourably uh, for the time. This would be the Fiat twin cam that was being turbocharged, you know, mm-hmm. uh, the old stalwart. Um, and the results, well, I mean, it was never going to be uh, a WRC winner and it wasn't really intended to be more of a, a regional national championship bagger. But it did pretty well. Um, we had, uh, I thought I'm about to butcher some Italian again, Mario Preglasico, 
uh, was uh, the fella who was charged with with spearheading the campaign. He'd done quite a lot of the successful driving with the NA GT Group 2 car. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a natural choice. He was at the helm when uh, the car got its best high-profile result, overall victory, victory on the Danube rally in 1980. Um, mm. And after that, results were fairly patchy. Uh, a fifth in IPA, uh, second overall in the Madeira rally. Um, but always there was the, the constant drama of overheating, poor reliability, not enough money, and the looming presence of there being a wealth of better-funded, uh, dare I say, perhaps better-managed uh, alternative rally programs competing for the same slice of the pie. Um, mm. Well, at this point, uh, Alfa Romeo were still independent, weren't they? They weren't bought by Fiat until 82? Later than that, yeah. I think, yeah, yeah because like, they yeah, were still yeah. developing the Sprint as an independent company while lurching from one financial misfortune to the next. Um, but even by 1980, Jim, like it's a 250 at that point, 250 horsepower in turbocharged guys. Not particularly potent against even DNA stuff at that point either, was it? No, exactly. Um, and perhaps it said a lot that, that the same basic car had much greater success uh, in its Group A GTV V6 NA form later in the decade. Yeah, for um, sure. But a well-balanced thing. Um, certainly a keen handler by all accounts. Um, As one would expect from a transaxle alpha of the day. Well, indeed, you know, uh, front twin wishbone, bone, twin front wishbones, torsion beer, torsion beam, and a Didi on rear axle. So, you know, fairly advanced for the time. Uh, but, you know, as ever, out of time, out of luck, and come the beginning of the 1980s, there's, you know, Group B rally cars on the drawing board around the Europe, around Europe, and Alfa Romeo's attention was back on F1. Uh, where it was continuing to to also fail, uh, <laughs> yeah. it needed to, to give its full attention to being bad at F one. I can only be bad at one thing at a time. <laughs> Please, don't 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 make me fail twice. Um, um yes, uh, and and our man uh, Preg Lasigo again uh, finished fifth overall in the European Rally Championship in 1981, uh, which was his best sort of championship placing. So hardly a world beater. But what a looker, what a sound, what a name. I mean, on, on name and looks alone, it should be better remembered and better known. I mean, it should sit right at the top of the Pantheon for the looks and name. Uh, well, stationary, um, very evocative just to say it. Isn't it? But um, yeah, and even when it was homologated to Group B, obviously it was going to be at a hiding to nothing because the class would have gone into what is well it, and did yeah trounce yeah. it. But I suppose it, it, it's another it's an interesting one in that it's it's one of these you know for the time and an upcoming car next is going to be a kind of an interesting line to draw between them. One of these cars that was never really intended to be an international rally car. No, it's a much of a regional privateer effort that the factory would rally to drum up you know sales of of it and market it yes exactly that i mean you know it's well it's easy to imagine you know uh uh, uh you know the a, a, a private company going to alfa romeo cap in hand and saying you know can we can we rally this car please uh you know it won't cost you much and and you might get some good column inches out of it um auto delta rather yeah so 
drawing a line now from another car that was um you know again sort of intended really to be the the privateer national regional event um competitor uh, is the oft forgotten Porsche or Porsche 924 GTS uh somewhat of a forgotten child in Porsche's rich history in motorsport but I guess they they do have a lot of cars and 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 winning cars to remember in their 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 really rich uh motorsport back catalog Yes, I mean, you know, even in even in nineteen four nine two four terms, if you're going to think of a a motorsporty one, you're going to think of the Le Mans one, aren't you? Mm, yeah, career GT, one. yeah. Um. So yeah, really, for, and, and even then, the the Le Mans one is probably well, maybe in 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 in, in car nerd terms or or more enthusiasts, they would have known of them. Um, it's not one that evokes much special memories or or <coughs> kind of fanboyism about it, but um. GTS I'd pretty much forgotten it until we embarked on this road so um, yeah uh, I guess maybe that maybe that validates it not to say that I'm the, the yardstick for remembering old Porsches um, mm. but yeah when you think of a Porsche on a special stage inevitably you think of one car and one car only a 911 of some guys over the years particularly SCs in, in the 80s um, and more recently uh, RGTs uh, etc uh, but the 924 was already homologated for group 4 because uh, of course group 4 was an all encompassing motorsport homologation in the form of the 924 GT uh, which went sports car racing as we said uh, but then along came the GTS so the GTS was an evolution of the GT uh, from the get go meant to go racing so 50 examples were required to fulfill the evolution requirements and the intention was to build a car that could be ran very competitively and reasonably cost effectively on national level, leaving the 911 SC and the planned 959 Group B car to tackle events and challenge on the international stage. The car would make great use of most of the parts and of the club sport version, uh, turbocharged four cylinder, eight valve Audi sourced engine, which of course at the time in the road car got a lot of flack, didn't it? Because the 924 was the 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 poor man's Volkswagen van engine um type thing. Uh and the turbocharged guys here producing 245 brake horsepower with a Getreg five-speed transaxle, sending power to the rear wheels with close to 50-50 weight distribution and giving the kind of handling you'd expect from a transaxle Porsche of the day. Uh the engine featured a top-mounted intercooler, hence the distinctive afterthought looking bonnet scoop which looks like something that people that you see people putting them on kind of a Halford special type scenario. Oh, um, that was a retro put down there. Ah, it's not that bad, is it? Well, it, it just looks, you know, it's just, it's off. It's anytime you see an off center bonnet scoop, it's kind of the, the ones you see slapped onto the bonnet of whatever kind of scrap heap you see back in the day. Excuse me. I'm off to take my, uh, my Nova to the local cruise to put some Mackie strays under the back wheel. Yeah. Of base. I was going to say Corsa, but you're showing your age. Um... <laughs> uh, and it also had once again, drum roll, Jamie Bosch Kugel Fisher fuel injection. Uh, and with the car well along the way, a driver was needed to showcase it, one we've mentioned earlier, and will, will come up again, actually, later in the episode. Enter Walter Roll. So Roll was after coming off the back of a successful period and due to step into the Mercedes, which I mentioned <laughs> earlier, Jamie. 
but once that deal fell through, and while there was a good opportunity with Audi on the table, he turned his nose up at it and didn't fancy the unproven Quattro. And he, he had had some dalliances of Porsche in the past. And I guess if you're looking at a motorsport outfit, Audi at the time, you you would you can understand why he would have backed away from that maybe early on to go, <laughs> well, Porsche know what they're at. Um, so let's give this a go. Uh, so he'd entered into talks with Porsche and with all parties happy. In early 1981, a 924 GTS was ordered for his use in the German championship. Now, his car would feature bigger wheel arches as seen on the 924 GTR. So his car would be slightly different even to what the, the regular privateer would get. So again, wheel arch extensions, uh, able to run wider wheels and tires, fitted by the ever-present Matter, who again seemed to have had their hand in almost everything <laughs> when it comes to <laughs> car prep uh, at certain points. Uh, Rohr was well chuffed that the result and commented rather favourably on the 924. Uh, and, and to be fair, not a man to give out such comments and praise lightly, if anyone has ever seen videos of Rohr whatsoever. His debut behind the wheel of the GTS came at the Mets rally with a second place and with full backing from Porsche. So the decision was made to contest the full German championship, which resulted in four wins from 10 and some bad luck preventing further visits uh, to the top step of the podium. In September 1981, Porsche gave Rohr a run out in the 911 SC in San Remo, which meant he couldn't contest the final round of the German championship. And that meant despite having enough points to take the championship win, Porsche weren't able to take the crown. Well, this had been presumably uh, a, 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 under an era when drop scores were still in, in effect as well. So maybe he would have had to have you know, dropped one of those to mm. anywhere. So, with 1982 arrived Group B, albeit in its very much in its fledgling days, uh, with Group Four still being the main attraction, or as the subject of this episode, Group Four cars now homologated for Group B. So, Rohr left Porsche to drive for Opel again uh, in the Escona 400, but Porsche pressed ahead and applied for the transfer to Group B with the 924, and it, in doing so, received a power hike to 280 brake horsepower under the to Group B regulations. Jürgen Barth would steer this in a quite tasty boss livery, red with kind of a white boss all over it, uh, to second in Group B and 10th overall in the 1982 Monte Carlo. It's just a bad effort uh, in which the overall honours went to Walter Rohr <laughs> uh, in an Ascona, who would, of course, go on to win the championship that year in the Ascona. More on that later. Unfortunately, here, the story of the 924 GTS oddly kind of just stops. Um, Jackie X drove one in the same year to Buchel the Spa, but privately ran GTSs just didn't seem to appear after that. Uh, it's really, really strange. I mean, it would appear that they did everything right in terms of marketing it. You would think that it, it seemed to be reasonably well-priced. You have Roll bossing it on the, no pun intended, national championship. Uh, you know, good result, you know, Jackie X driving one. Mm -hmm. You would think that privateers in Germany and France and Belgium would have picked these up, but they just didn't seem to appear. And it wasn't a particularly unreliable car. It didn't seem to, from what I can find, cause any outward issues or, mm -hmm. you know, it was, certainly wasn't combusting or anything like that. Um, but I think it's worthy of discussion, not just due to being one of the vehicles and fits in this Group v, Group 4 slash Group B Venn diagram we've created, but as a sort of an interesting experiment in a co company trying to sell a model intended for national level while still having a full fat international spec car running at the same time, particularly from a company such as Porsche. Yeah, I mean, 
viewed out on paper, it would seem that you know Porsche could basically offer any driver from any any tier a, a rally card at the time, couldn't they? You know, mm. from anything Group B downwards, really. When you think of it like what we see today, where manufacturers doing you know your R5s and your rally or rally twos and your rally threes and and your full fat WRC efforts, that you can bring something right down the pyramid, seems kind of foresighted. But I I can't really quite figure out why it didn't take off. Um, you probably have to ask someone involved maybe to figure that out. Maybe circuit racing, as ever, took a, a bigger slice of the the the, the funds. Mm. <clears throat> Most likely, I guess, to be honest. And, and it was quite a successful car in circuit racing, from what I can mm. see. Well, yeah, it's not like Porsche were, were lacking for successful circuit racing at the time either, was it? No, time? not quite floundering uh, and, and struggling to keep up for the. No, not at all. Not at all. Right. Next up, we have, uh, I think, one of my favorite Group 4 rally cars of all the Mitsubishi Lancer 2000 Turbo. Um, it's yeah, a, a classic case of a, a group four rally car being outwardly wholly unspectacular. A classic three box saloon with no wings really to speak of, certainly no aero. Uh, but uh, our old favorite four G sixty three turbocharged engine debut and and you know initially showing what it could do. Um, what a, what a lifespan that engine had! I know, right? It's incredible. Absolutely. Like, when did they stop putting 4G63s into stuff? Not very long ago. Not very long ago, no, exactly. <laughs> yeah, well, I suppose how old is the Evo 10 now? I guess don't, that's the, that, I, do the maths on that. Don't. Mm. That, was, that was two years ago, that I believe. Yeah, it's um, just released. Yeah, uh, yeah. Look at it, it's so futuristic and <laughs> pointy. It's got a dual clutch gearbox in it. Yeah. <laughs> mm. I hear that Cali Robin Pera is going to be quite good when he's old enough. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Mitsubishi, uh, along with the vast majority of its its uh, fellow uh, Japanese car manufacturers, viewed rallying like it's a bit like like Mercedes as as a means of proving the worth of its standard cars for most of the seventies, um, which is how you get things like the Group Two Lancer GSR. Uh, which is the car that Andrew Cowan uh, won the 1976 Safari in, um, which is the event that really sort of got Mitsubishi started as, as a rallying mark. Um, and I dare say if they'd made hay off the back of that and had something suitable uh, and and as, as forward-looking as the Lancer available at the time, then I think we'd probably be looking at Mitsubishi as a rally winner, if not a championship winner, in the late 70s, early 80s, because when you look at how good the Lancer 2000 became when it arrived um, and, and how quick it was, how how good an all-round package it eventually became, I think it could have been a world beater. Um, but it wasn't to be, of course. Um, it was uh, homologated uh, in, or launched in 1980, homologated later that year. Um Still conventional layout with front engine rear wheel drive, but that uh, same engine was turbocharged, of course, um, had the first electronically programmable ECU, seen in the WRC, uh, and EFI, uh, electronic fuel injection, not Kugelfisher, sadly. Uh, I know, exactly. You can't, you can't win them all. What was the second car to have an electronically programmable ECU? I don't know. Answers on a postcard? I've never looked. 
I should have I should have had something just just had a, a random one off the bat. Really. No, I put you on the spot there. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah I just yeah. it just came to me. Certainly not the turbo doll. No, <laughs> electronically programmable fire extinguisher. Um, <clears throat> and it was plenty powerful as well. Um, two hundred and sixty brake from the get go, and and much more than that really. Uh, within a few months of up and running, and of course this is an era when. Boost was a fairly uh, uh, nebulous thing that that wasn't really monitored or metered. So who knows? Certainly wasn't regulated. Yeah, no. Um, but that obviously came with with its own uh, share of issues. It, it ran very warm, um, and there was a lot of stuff crammed in that quite small bonnet. Um, and 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 overheating accounted for quite a lot of early failures. Um, I think its debut was on the Acropolis. Uh, where Andrew Cowan and Anders Kulang set good times, but both retired through various engine overheating-related maladies. Um, also, very tricky. Sorry, go on. No, I just wouldn't fan- fancy debuting on the Acropolis, would you? You seem oh. like you're setting yourself up for... If there's a rally that's going to give you problems, particularly with heat, um, yes, mm. perhaps not the one to choose, is it? I wonder if the thinking was... You if know, it can do a, it here, it can do it anywhere. Yeah, and it's and it's not like having a debut on the safari because it is a European classic event. But as as you know, anyone of our age grew up learning, grew up reading, the Acropolis was the closest you could get to a safari rally while without leaving Europe. Really, wasn't mm. it a proper car breaker? Yeah. Um, it's also quite tricky to drive. I mean, you know, all Group Four rally cars were, but it was very peaky, very binary in its boost delivery, quite skinny tires, lots of power. Um, uh, but but you know, not 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 hamstrung by it. Um, reliability was never what it should have been, and uh, Mitsubishi's best result for 1981 was Anders Kulang's ninth overall on the RAC, um, which kind of set the tone because the following year Mitsubishi decided to step back and do a sporadic. Uh, piecemeal rally program. Uh, 1982 was, was something of a mixed bag uh, because, of course, while it was apparent that the the Lancer was plenty quick enough and now almost reliable enough to to be uh, a heavy hitter, this is also the year when the first of the Group B supercars start arriving, and it becomes very clear that four wheel drive isn't so much a, uh, an option anymore as a necessity. Um, Mitsubishi itself started uh, work on what would eventually become the ill-fated Starion Group B program um, and also expanded its Rally Raid program at the time. So of course, Mitsubishi always a big fan of that uh, Dakar-style stuff, um, which left the Lancer to sort of maybe not wither on the vine, but uh, but certainly... Um, but certainly struggle for, 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 for results and support, um, which meant that Penti Arakala's third overall on the Thousand Lakes in 1982 was its best result, um, which is incredible when you think about it. Think of the, the strength of opposition there at the time. Um, it says a lot about its, uh, it, its outright speed potential and Penti's balls-to-the-wall driving on home turf, really. Yeah, Penti was a, a rather flamboyant... Uh, peddler of of Mitsubishi's over the years, wasn't he? Big fan of Penty, big fan mm. of um, mm. And I he was he was also... a big fan of the Midlands, as we mentioned before, or oddly, wasn't he? Yes, unofficial hero of the podcast, uh, Penty Arakala. <laughs> um, 
So yes, um, the Lancer was uh, homologated to Group B uh, quite late to the day in uh, January 1983, um, but uh, by that point, Mitsubishi itself had turned its attention fully to what would become the uh, the aforementioned Starion program um, and its rally raid endeavours. So, you know, after that, the Lancer was yesterday's man and largely forgotten. The interesting one about the Lancer is that, as you say, it was launched quite late, like in 1980, like the Group B, Group B had been announced if the regulations had not been indeed finalized at that point. But it's another example of of that drum will keep beating, maybe that at that point, Mitsubishi had committed to it and guessed that it'll more be Group 4 plus. Uh, and another example of this manufacturer, maybe not quite grasping the potential of it, but I guess it kind of evolved like that anyway. And plenty of them fell down that hole before you know, like like every rule set in motorsport there has to be someone that turns up and goes well we can go mental or we can get around this or whatever but I, although i think to be fair that is what fisa's intention was all the time was that the cars would kind of get that bit wilder but um yeah yeah you know, considering it's late arrival to group four i guess you'd think that when mitsubishi had put the money behind it that they could get it into group b and be somewhat okay and competitive with it so yeah, I, mean, I think Mitsubishi and Japanese car manufacturers across the board were always a, a lot more beholden to the idea of, of rallying a, a production car, you know, or at least mm. a production-related car, um, which is why, you know, they were all over the moon when Group A was promoted back to the top. Yeah, it was a such a much wilder prospect to think of a Mitsubishi developing some sort of mid-engine four-wheel drive version of, I don't know, a Colt. Or whatever, then Peugeot turning up with the two hundred five, yeah. um, and certainly even when they proceeded to start making the Starion, it's reasonably yeah. traditional. Other than you know, you got four wheel drive, but or or well, yes, it was four wheel drive rather than all wheel drive, um, but um, yeah, certainly a different different aspect to it, and, and as you say, Group A much more favoured their approach. Yes. I mean, it's all Peugeot's fault, really. This is the the idea that it's, it's Peugeot is the one that fully embraced what Group B could could potentially become, ran with it, and just made everyone else look like also runs overnight, really. Mm. God yeah. damn it, Jean Pierre Nicolas. <laughs> uh, we love him for it all the same. <laughs> you know, we would we wouldn't have such great discourse on the internet, would we, about how great Group B was and everything after it's been shit. Um, <laughs> so you know. And all those people are correct, of course. Uh, uh, that is true. <laughs> and so to round this off, we go to what's probably the king of the Group 4 transfers. Well, I'm crowning it as such. Uh, in the form of the Opel Ascona B400. And the B doesn't stand for Group B. Um, <laughs> uh, it's been many years, Jamie, I guess, since we've considered the Opel brand heavyweight in both national and international rallying but in the mid to late 70s this was very much the case wasn't it where a common sight in the form of Commodores, Escona A's and, and probably yes. most famously the Cadet GTE of course sorry <laughs> <laughs> well, we both landed on the same thing that's what's important yes yeah, so, uh, I mean that's the car that Walter Roll cut his teeth in hasn't it um, and it, well with the agonizing annoyance because of that fecking 16 valve 16 head. valve yeah um and i'm about to get to it <laughs> yeah so yeah the cadet 
often in the forms of uh, of Jamie said, uh, often in the hands of, of Walter Roll. Um, no, Roll had ended his previous stint peddling opals in frustration at the unreliability of the 16-valve head and the cadet. Uh, he'd much preferred the 8-valve or um, uh, mid-season as well, um, mm. which probably wasn't as unusual then as it would be now. Uh, he did camp to Fiat, didn't he? Wasn't that correct? Like yeah, went to greener pastures at a bath, so he drove one, three ones in Stratos's over the next couple of years. Um, before his aforementioned dalliance in the 924 GTS, uh, but in 1982, Opel had enticed him back with a car proven to be quite the performer. Uh, by the time Roll returned, GS Gona B400. Uh, the Ascona 400 homologation special was unveiled at the 1979 Frankfurt Motor Show. The 400 in the name, reflecting the 400 cars required to homologate the model for competition duh, um, in Group 4. So Opel wanted the Ascona to take the battle to the ever-present, ever-winning 131s and Escort RS1800s of this world at national and international level. Uh, and this was a car that was going to be heavily marketed. They wanted to sell these in, in big numbers um, using a proven formula they knew so well. Naturally aspirated lump at the front, drive to the back, two-door body. Fairly traditional, could you say conservative uh, car. You know, it, it, it wasn't trying Big carbs. You know, and it would have been a bigger car as well than um, Escort and 131s. Not by much. When you look at an Escona now, you think it looks big and you stand next to it. It's the size of a car. So well, I actually said big carbs, as in carburetors. But yes, oh, I, I did I, hear I, that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did have big carbs. Uh, but yes, I did hear you properly. Don't worry. Good on. <laughs> uh, it works both ways. Um, and the engine from the Group 2 Cadet was to form the heart of this machine, but wouldn't make the power required also to solve these 16-valve reliability issues. Um, wouldn't make the power required to take the fight to the top. So Open enlisted Cosworth, because if it worked for Ford, why wouldn't it work for them? Uh, to boost the power to levels required reliably. Armshire, synonymous with modified Opals over the years. Uh, and you still see Armshire kits on things. That kind of died. You don't see Armshire kits on new Opals, but they're still knocking about in places, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, they would handle the body modifications out of factory. Cosworth bored out the two liter unit from the cadet, resulting in a little over 2.4 liter displacement. I think 2,457 cc's, if I had to be very exact. It's a weird engine because I'm pretty sure that, uh, that the Cosworth engine ended up using the crank from a diesel record. Yes, the CIH diesel engine. I like a CIH. I like yeah, a CIH. you're absolutely bang on the money. But of course, you are an Opel Vauxhall weirdo. So, <laughs> uh, so yeah, you're absolutely bang on. The tougher crank from the CIH. Um, Cosworth 16-valve head, because obviously the 2-liter 16-valve head in the cadet was rubbish and power outfit outputs varied between 200 230 and base race trim up as high as 340 which is quite mm. the figure but with the caveat of reliability issues at that point for sure uh the escona b's competition debut came in january 1980 in group four and resulted in a fourth and eighth place finish in monte carlo with no issues with either car so off to a fairly auspicious start, 
over the rest of the year, and I think this is I was I was delving into EWRC on this one, and I had to to end this up again. It would compete all over the world on dozens of events with a pretty reasonable success from Europe to Africa to the Himalayan Rally, racking up many class wins and podium honors, and even getting an outright WRC victory on its second ever outing in Sweden in the hands of Anders Kulling, who we've mentioned. It's all the same names popping up in this one, isn't there? Yeah, uh, yeah. I guess if you're a, a, a middle-of-the-road rally driver, journeyman driver seeking to make your career in the late 70s, you had a, a few options. If you were French, you went to some mid-engine tarmac refugee. And if you were from Northern Europe, you got some some opal. It's got to be some fans of Anders Cullen contacting you. I've gone in the middle of the road. I mean, all journeyman. Five, all five members of the Anders Cullen uh, <laughs> Appreciation Society are going to be up in arms. <laughs> Um, well, yeah, in, in, in 1980, it did uh, 145 starts in 96 different events. So they really shifted these as corners. Oh, to be no, okay, they had prominence in rallying at this point. So I guess if you're coming off the back of a cadet or or a previous Escona or a Commodore, they must have gotten the orders in right early. This car only came out in 1980. So, uh, yeah, 96 different events and racked up 18 victories and 48 podiums and only 39 retirements which is a very good, actually, finishing figure for the day, given that if you didn't crash the car, reliability, a reliable, quote-unquote, car would still be reasonably unreliable by today's terms. I think they were partly helped by the fact that the, the Skoda B had such a long gestation period, because, of course, you had early, you know, non-Cosworth Group 2 Skoda Bs competing in the late 70s. Um, mm-hmm. With guys like Yockey Clint and uh, and such, Yockey uh, Clint, yeah, Yockey Clint, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, never, never, never WRC winners, but, but quite strong in the the European Rally Championship. Uh, Yockey Clint won that in 1979, and this was in its in its eight valve CAH four. So I can readily see how if you were, you know. Tony Fall, Opal team manager to- at the time. Tony, can- Tony Fall was the guy heading up this. Yeah, I, I can imagine how you know if. Come the start of the the four hundred program in and the start of nineteen eighty, you'd have most of the, the the weak spots, if not ironed out, at least identified. You know, and as I'm sure you're about to say, I mean, you know, it it became a a winner because it was such a reliable workhorse rather than being the best car. You know, it was. Yeah, it didn't, and it didn't overly change massively from Group Four even into Group B. Like the 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 big one was that Cosworth engine essentially um the rest of the car was fundamentally change. good yeah and it doesn't change much really from into the manta. 400 to manta 400 does yeah. it? same engine you know i mean yeah yeah mild increase in power yeah. mm. so while opel's hottest new product was off globe trotting fisa had of course at this time announced group b and in 1981 the group four quattro had arrived to put it right up to the russellheim rocket so Opel had planned its new rallying flagship to be the next Manta Coupe, as we've said. And while that was being finished, they transferred the Ascona into Group B under the transfer rules rather than the evolution rules. And this is where we rejoin good old Walter Roll. So this was the phase two Ascona B, uh, only lightly fettled to keep its edge in a new category. Most of what they changed when they went to Group B was just a few composite body panels. This is basically it. Uh, so with this oh, done, you've got those cool rubber uh, bonnet aerofoils, which 
which surely did something, even though they clearly didn't. Yeah, they can't have done much, could they? But they're cool. No, they are cool as fuck. Yeah. Um. So yeah, with the aerofoils in place, they handed the keys to Walter. No, I used to think like everyone remembers Lancia's epic battle for the manufacturer's title with Audi in 1983, but surely the battle for the driver's crown in '82 is as good a story, and doesn't get enough mention, does it? Doesn't you know, at all, does it? I mean, we're getting a movie out of the Lancia versus Audi situation, which I admit I am excited enough to see. Um, but this driver-on-driver drama in '82, especially when you have something that. The group four product versus okay, it's still a group four quattro, really. I guess you know, um, what very much something that's in a template for us going forward. It's almost a more interesting battle to me, a bit more romantic, maybe. I don't know, certainly more of an underdog, underdog story, yeah. Because you know, Delancia is still you know, a bespoke, it is and was a bespoke rally machine, you know, From really a, a world beating rally team, world beating rally team, yeah. You know, supercharged, mid-engined, you know, basically a, a space frame. Um, you know, you've got this two-box mobile putting it up to the, the, the Quattro. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, a r- really good battle uh, for the driver's crown between Rohr in his soon-to-be obsolete Ascona and Michel Mouton and Hanu Mikla in their Quattros. You know, it really came down to Rohr and Mouton. Now, Roller go on to clinch the title by 12 points, making him the last world champion to win in a two-wheel drive machine. Uh, though Mouton did actually win three events to Roller's two, mm. but her accidents on the 1,000 lakes and the Ivory Coast rallies meant the championship went to Roller. But um, had she finished? I mean, and certainly two rallies that you would expect that if, if they were going to perform. Yeah. Uh, she could have easily she could have easily taken that title, really. Because uh, there was two, there was two mechanical issues as well, but uh, and I think maybe there was three accidents. So uh, yeah. I guess maybe Roy's experience and and the reliability of the Ascona. Well, he was uh, metronomic in his consistency as well. I mean, mm. you know, he won uh, a fairly dry Monty, which mm. is quite impressive as well. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, against uh, all manner of Porsches and the like. But from then on, you know, you've got uh, second on the Safari. Second in the Acropolis, third New Zealand, second Brazil, third San Remo, victory in Ivory Coast. It's just a case of, you know, a, a classic Walter Roll performance of bagging the points and, and emerging sitting pretty at the end of it, really. Yeah. So it's a, it's an interesting, as I say, maybe we maybe we should get the movie about that. Uh, um and in nineteen eighty three, I suppose this the story for the Ascona didn't end in eighty two because in eighty three, uh, and it's got a point to leave this uh podcast. Group four, and indeed the Ascona really got their last hurrah in the hands of Ari Vatnin on its very last event before it was replaced by the Manta and, this, and with an outright victory on the Safari Rally that really should have been out of its reach for a car that was not far removed from its Group four origins to clinch a win in 83 against fierce competition. And that, as I say, remains, it seems, as good a place as any to wrap this episode up. Absolutely. Fitting conclusion for one heck of a rally car. Yeah, it's really good, isn't it? I prefer one to a Manta. It's a close from thing. And not to say I don't like a Manta. I mean, you know, take uh, either, but um do like an Ascona. I believe you have to uh, renounce your Irish citizenship if you don't like Mantas. If you say on a podcast that you're 
Well, I didn't say I didn't like him, and I've said in a previous episode I really liked him. So, yeah, uh, my old man meant a neighbor. So, yeah, there is a there is an Escona knocking about. Although I haven't seen it for a few years, there is an Escona. I don't know where in the country it's based, but with a Millington diamond in. Hmm, which makes a which makes a change. Well, I have both. You can have a Mancona or an Asmanta. You can change the front end around them. Yeah. Yeah. Mark Four Golf, Mark Four Jetta type situation. Not yeah. no, no, that's not as not as good as that. That's not... <laughs> right. So that brings us to the end of our oh, did we figure out a name for this? Yeah, we didn't, didn't we? <laughs> group four in group B. Group four in group B. That's the end of Season 2, Episode 7, Group 4 into Group B. Thanks very much for listening, as always. Do like, rate, subscribe. We do also publish these on YouTube, so feel free to give us abuse in the comment section there. Um, follow us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, follow us on Twitter at RallyDNA, and we'll see you next time for another episode of Rally DNA. Thanks, Jamie, and thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks, Jamie, guys. For Walter Roll, his co-driver Christian Geistorfer, and his new team, the year could scarcely have begun in better style. Yes, champagne goes rather well with Monte Carlo, doesn't it? And there is the official result, and the timings on the right-hand side, of course, are the aggregate times of all the special stages that they've been uh, pursuing throughout uh, the rally. A win then for the 1980 world champion Walter Roll in the Opal. In second place, Hanno Mikola in the Audi Quattro. And in third place, Jean-Luc Terrier in the Porsche.